Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and because we're in Boston, lobsters everywhere saying, I ain't getting that thing, that ain't no hot tub. Live from the exhibit hall, the annual convention of the American Council of the Teaching of Foreign Languages here in Beantown, USA, it's Tea with BBP. Big shot from the audience. We just had to prove to everybody listening that we actually are somewhere live. Hey everyone, it's me, your host, Bill Van Patten, AKA BBP, international superstar and diva of SLA. And speaking of lobsters, with what? me today here at ACFL is your choice of steamed or broiled. Give a big round of applause for Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Am I steamed or broiled? What are you, Wally? I am not so sure. Uh, <laughs> probably neither for those of us who are vegetarians. <laughs> and thank you for speaking up. We have a special guest with us today. Big round of applause for my colleague and the doyen of interactional research and other kinds of things in second language acquisition, the famous Dr. Susan Gass. <laughs> so how y'all enjoying the conference? It's going well? Okay, I know people at home can't see this, but I'll, I'll try to... Tr I'll raise your hand if you've been to more than three sessions today. Oh, good wow. for you. Oh, that's fantastic. And you're here and you're still alive. I, almost everybody raised their hands, those of you who are, who are not here. My God, that's a, that's, a lot, that's a lot of conference attending. That's and a how lot many of... were here at eight for eight o'clock sessions? Yeah. Wow. wow. Look at that. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. These are dedicated people, man. You must be getting paid for this. You know, none of us are getting paid up here, so if you want to put some money in the tip jar oh, really? on your way out, that's fine. <laughs> I thought we were. <laughs> well, sorry, I know. Sue. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Okay. Well, remember that um, this is a live show, so we don't take phone calls today because we have no phone system here. We're not in our studio. But we do have a microphone here next to your pal, Walter Hopkins. And so we're inviting people up to ask questions, make comments, make suggestions, whatever you want to talk about. About. And as usual, yes, Bryce, that means you. As usual, we have during the show, uh, just because it's a live show doesn't mean we're not going to do this, we're going to have our SLA challenge question. So I will give the question in a few minutes, and the first person to make it to the mic with the correct answer will win a prize. Walt, do you want to show what the prize is? Hold up a prize. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. If you answer a question. Walter. You win a tea with BBP tote. <laughs> Better than another one you're carrying around right now. No. What? Better, just better color. Kidding. Just it's a better color. <laughs> Sue does not like green. Okay. Uh, so I'll give you that question in a few minutes. Make it to the mic, and also later on, once we get that question out of the way, I'll give you the diva challenge question. Um, and the first person to make it to the mic with the answer to that question will also win Walter. A what? Yay! <laughs> okay. Again, remember we can't take your calls. Boo hoo hoo. So we are depending on the audience for participation. Okay? And if, I, if this, is, this is like a classroom. If I'm going to start calling on people. People don't just come up. Okay, so we'll do that. And Angelica, are you on Mixler? Yes, I am. So we're on Mixler. We got our fans out there. Probably a lot of them are here. How yeah. many of you are regular Tea with BBP fans? Yell out. Yell out. There you go. Awesome. There you go. Great. Um, how many of you thought, is this your first time doing one of our shows live at a convention or a conference? Wow. Wow. Is it everything you thought it would be? And, and more. <laughs> exactly. Just, well, we'll just wait to get into it. Angelica, how many listeners do we have on Mixler? Uh, Twelve. So and most, of, most of them are here. They're sad that they're not with us, yes. Aww. So shout out to our Mixler crowd here, too. Yeah, well, maybe they'll pick up, you know. But, you know, it depends on where they are, because it could be really nice weather somewhere on a Saturday at 3 o'clock. I bet it is. Or 2 o'clock, or 1 o'clock, or 12 o'clock, or 11 o'clock. Betsy, what time is it in Alaska right now? Four? Four hours difference? Okay. So. 11 a.m. 11 a.m. Well, I don't know. I don't know. We had a very lively, well, I thought it was lively and very interesting plenary session that Steve Krashen and I did yesterday. Did you all go to that? Anybody go to that one? Yeah. I thought it wasn't a fun. I thought it was fun. Um, and There's no room to sit down. Yeah, I know. That was, I'm surprised the fire marshal didn't shut us down. And so I invite anybody who has follow-up questions to that, what Steve talked about. I can't speak for Steve, but I will, I will try to say something about what he said. Uh, but if you have questions for me as follow-ups, 
for what we what we talked about, I'll be happy to do that because um, we have no particular topic today because this show is all about what you all want to talk about and what questions you have and maybe things you've seen here at the conference. So with that said, I am going to give you the SLA challenge question to get your brains going. So this is a true-false question. You ready? Everybody knows what true-false is, right? It's a binary choice. Okay, so here's the question. To date, there is no research demonstrating that instruction can alter acquisition orders or developmental sequences. True or false? And don't answer it. Okay. Come up if you want to answer. Oh my God, we got somebody coming up. Is this Rachel? Wow. Okay. Front row. Rachel, you had to hold the mic close. Hold the mic close. This first. Really close like this. Yeah, very close okay. like that. You're not. You're not Selena Gomez like this. No, you gotta. You gotta. Okay. So I'm gonna repeat the question because Rachel jumped. Which is like a little jack in the box. Did you see that? Like, did you press the button and pop her out of her seat? I think you did. Okay. So here was the question again. To date, there is no research demonstrating that instruction can alter acquisition orders or developmental sequences. True or false, Rachel? True. What do you say? Well, I'm reading it right there. <laughs> it must be true. You should know it, Sue. <laughs> well, as far as we know, there's no research. It doesn't mean there isn't some out there that's not published, but as far as we know, there's no published research. So, yes, that is true. Yay! So, Rachel. Rachel. Hold your prize up and show everybody your prize. Look at that. Look at that. Yay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Okay. Um, do we have, before I give you the Diva Challenge question for later, does anybody want to come up and ask a question? Rachel, you were up here. You could have asked a question while you're here. Now you're going to have to get up again. I wish you get people from the back. Yeah, we got, They're at a disadvantage. We got, a yeah, we got all kinds. Okay, we got people. We got people coming up. So while, while I will entertain you with a song while he's walking, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to entertain you. If you're you. interested in asking a question, you're certainly welcome to come on over here and Dustin will make a line. So, This is our good friend, Tim. Say hi, everybody. Say hi to Tim. And we only do, remember, we only do, well, you can do last names here if you want, but we technically only do first names because we like to protect the privacy of people when people call into the show. But this is pretty public. Everybody can see your badge. So, <laughs> so what's on your mind? Hold the mic close. Okay. Uh, my question is this. You know, explicit knowledge is so ingrained in people's psyches. Hold it back a little bit. People who, who have not studied second language acquisition um, cling to the notion that instruction is the way to go with explicit instruction. So I tell my, I, I do teacher training, and I tell my students, I give, give them, uh, I, I think metaphorically about the question, and I say, okay, um, explicit knowledge or conscious knowledge you does... Best teacher's voice. My best teacher's voice. I don't... I, don't, I think, this is, Luca, you can hear Tim, right? Yeah, he can hear you, yeah. The conscious mind, huh? the conscious mind thinking about language cannot communicate with the implicit system. They're just two systems that don't know how to talk to one another. And I just want to, want to know what you think of that analogy. Um, that the conscious mind and the unconscious mind can't talk to each other? Um, it, it, I think that's a different issue from whether an explicit system and an implicit system communicate with each other. Because if, if I were Freud or Jung or somebody like that, I might answer that question differently than if I were a second language acquisition or so linguist talking about a linguistic system. So, so let me rephrase it and say it's not so much about the conscious mind and the unconscious mind talking to each other, but an explicit system and an implicit system communicating with each other. And I would argue, based on the research that I'm familiar with, that they don't communicate, they don't interact that they're two separate systems. Um, and uh, there's, there's all kinds of research that we could talk about and cite for that. Um, we don't have time, obviously our show never has time to do that. Uh, but the short answer, and Sue can address this if she disagrees with me or, or if she agrees with me, but I think to t talk about the systems actually communicating and interacting, um, it's hard to say that they do. Do you have any other? I guess I would want to say it really depends on what you mean by communicating with one another. Um, it would be, in my view, somewhat inefficient to have two separate systems that never have anything to do with one another. Um, so, I, I mean, I think we are probably are not totally in agreement on this. Um, and I think there's a lot of room for debate, but I would also want to know what it means to communicate with one another. What is exactly, you know, what would we mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that one can't turn into the other. I would argue that. Um, 
but at, again, how systems communicate is, I mean, there are interfaces. In, la in language, we talk about interfaces, for example, between syntax and discourse, or interfaces between syntax and morphology. Um, and those are metaphors for talking about how these things have to work together to yield what we call sentences or yield what we call structure. Um, and so we wouldn't say in linguistics communicating. Um, and so um, the debate in the past has always been whether there's interfaces between explicit and implicit systems. Um, and, and, and that's, I think that's up for grabs. I, I still maintain that, that if there's any interface, it's pretty weak. Um, for a variety of reasons. Oh, I think we're getting a signal. Yeah, we're getting a signal that enough. they can't hear us in the back there, so. Okay, thank you, Tim, that was good. Okay, I'm gonna give you the Diva Challenge question, and then we're gonna, hopefully somebody, hopefully somebody will come up and ask us another question. You ready for this? Which pop diva, who is the top-selling female artist of all time, has never won a Grammy as a solo artist? Which pop diva who is the top-selling female artist of all time has never won a Grammy as a solo artist? There you go. Senor Willie should know that when he's a musician. There you go. Okay. Well, neither Walter or I will know the answer, so. I do not know the answer. Of course oh, you don't. I don't know the answer. Of course Walter doesn't know the answer. Oh, I do know the if answer. If you know the answer, you gotta run up. Oh, you gotta Sue, get I'm you're cheating. cheating. <laughs> Come on up. She was first. Get her up. She was first. You can get her. No, 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 no. You got to get up here and do it. We're going to put you in the hat. You cannot come shout from the back. The you got to come up here. This is audience participation. What are you afraid? Someone's going to steal your pizza back there? She's walking up here with a right pizza. Here. Notice that, how rude. I'm Latino. She's rude. She didn't even it's, offer it's me any. The first thing you do is you... I'm just kidding you. You offer the pizza to everyone. What's your... <laughs> what's your what, what, Walter, what are you doing? What? Just give us the answer. Go ahead. What's your name and what's the answer? Okay, my name is Mariella. No, and closer, closer. Closer now? Yeah, that's good. There, I don't good. do inches. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> give me permission right in inches. Um, your your name? Sure about this. What's your is name? Madonna? I'm Mariella. Ma Ma Mariella. 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 Where are you from, Mariella? Chile. Chile? What part of Chile? Santiago. Santa, you know, I filmed Soliviento in Chile. You know Soliviento? Sol you don't know Soliviento? Soliviento? I mean, oh I know what Sol is, I know what Viento is. Me estás rompiendo el corazón, mijita. Perdón, lo siento. Me estás rompiendo el corazón. Ay, lo siento. It's a no. movie. It's a movie. You don't know Soliviento? Sol I know Solilluvia. No. Ay, Dios mío. Ay, Dios mío. Chile is here because if they know Soliluvia, that's awesome. Whether you win or lose, I'm not giving you a tote bag now. I'm mad at you because oh. you don't know that's a good thing, Walter. Walter's here. He'll give it to you. I've got one here for you, you already. Okay, so here's the question again, Mariela. Which pop diva, who is the top-selling female artist of all time, has never won a Grammy as a solo artist? Uh, I, this is just my guess. Madonna? Huh? Madonna. Loud. Madonna. Can you sing that a song? right? It's Madonna! Yay! I didn't really know this. <laughs> good guess. It's a good guess. I always like to throw a little Michigan stuff in there. Madonna's a homegirl from Michigan. She's from right there. Right about there. And uh, she is the top-selling female artist of all time, and the poor girl has never won a Grammy Very as a solo sad. artist. Isn't that sad? Yeah, that is that sad. That is so sad. Nope. That's sad. Look at the tears in my eyes. Look at the tears in my eyes. All right, so where were we? Oh, yeah, we were talking about Madonna. Does Madonna speak any languages? Anybody know? English, probably. Yeah, no, Italian. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If she speaks. English is a language. Don't forget that. <laughs> I was thinking of maybe Klingon, you know, or Vulcan or something. I don't know. Isla Bonita, Lisa Bonita. Yeah, she made that one up. Okay, well, we're waiting for. Gosh, yeah, come on up. You don't have to raise your hand. This is not a class. You can just come on up. <laughs> Come on up, girl. Hi. Tell us, speak in the mic clearly. I am in the mic. And say your name. My name is Bess. Bess. Yes. Bess. I yes. have not heard that name, Bess, in a long time. I know. What part of the country are you from? Uh, Kansas City. Kansas City, that's where, why. Where was Bess Truman from? Uh, Independence, Missouri, Probably about 10 yeah. minutes Bess away. Was, <laughs> yeah, Bess was from, okay. All right, Bess, what's up? What's your question? What's your comment? Um, well, I'm just a little curious about the idea of IPAs in the classroom, and sadly not beers, because I do like to drink them, but not in the classroom. <laughs> um, 
but how they can be used in the novice levels with authentic texts and how much comprehensibility is enough comprehensibility? Yes, that's my question. God, you want a lot for five bucks, don't you? I'm sorry. Gosh. Um, you're asking the wrong person. Can, can, I'm going to confess. My, I know you all think I know everything, but I don't. Um, I know like this much about IPAs. I know what they are. I've been to a couple of talks on them, but I cannot talk to you about their implementation or actually... Uh, can anybody else ask, Can anybody else come to the mic and, and maybe address that for Bess um, about IPAs and the novice level, right? So you're talking with beginning learners of Spanish, French, German, Chinese, Russian, whatever. Um, and then their question was about the comprehensibility of the IPAs. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, not I'm not sure how to address that. I, I'm not sure. Could you answer what you see as the role of authentic texts in the novice classroom or, or authentic listening? It depends on what your goals are. It depends on what your goals are. Um, some people argue for the use of authentic materials, but, not, but, but very often, in my mind, the way they do them is for language practice. Um, as opposed to acquisition or actual, sometimes cultural information, but uh, of ways they do things like, oh, let's take a, this text and see how many words you can recognize in this text. And we go, that's great, but then what do you get out of recognizing these words? Other than saying, I feel good because I recognize words. And that in itself might have some value, right? We don't, some affective value, but I don't know what but that But you need an authentic text for that. Exactly. You, you don't need an authentic text for that. Um, but some people might take an authentic text. And again, let's just remember, because Charlene talked about this yesterday at a research panel, what the heck is an authentic text to begin with? Right. She and I had this argument in her office. Charlene's my colleague. I just am about to publish my first short story in Spanish written for second language learners at the second year level in college. It's written for them. And so I asked her, I said, is that an inauthentic text? And she said, yes, because it's not written for native speakers. I go, but I'm a native speaker. And I, and I said, but... I have colleagues who are teaching literary courses who are now using my story in their classes because they see the value in it as a piece of literary text and they're native speakers. No, it's still not an authentic text. So this whole idea, would because I, I like to think of classrooms as their own authentic contexts. And so the, the, I think the, the primary job is to bring things that are authentic to learners at the level that they're it's at. And it's appropriate for that context. Amen. And if you want to supplement with some so-called authentic text because you see some value in some goal you have, then I think that's okay too. Again, it all depends on what your goals are, right? So, yeah. So there. All right. Good question, Bess. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Bess. You. Oh, look like we got it. Okay, we got who we have. Oh, it's Serge. Yeah. Bonjour, Serge. Bonjour, professeur. Bonjour. Ça va aujourd'hui? Oui, ça va. Je m'appelle Serge. Bon, comme je viens de la Côte d'Ivoire, j'ai deux questions. De la Côte d'Ivoire? Oui. OK. On va parler en anglais, n'est-ce pas? Yes, OK. okay. So, I was saying that uh, I am Serge from Ivory Coast, Côte d'Ivoire. So, I have two questions. Right there. OK. So, first question. Dealing with SLA for adults, what is the role which can be played by input processing? Um, let me see, let me, re, let me repeat your question back to make sure I get it right. So for SLA for adults, what role can input processing play or does input processing play? Can. It play it well, it, oh, it, I mean, I see it as indispensable. Now, you're not confusing input processing with processing instruction, are you? Okay. Because every second language learner, whether a child, adult, or whatever, has to process input. So input processing is indispensable for getting the data out there and doing something to it so your language learning mechanisms in your head can, can make use of it in some way. So uh, it's, to me, it's not a can. It's, it's input processing is just another piece of the very big puzzle we call language acquisition. That you can't do, you can't learn language without it. Yeah. Because if you don't have input, you can't learn language in a vacuum. And we argue about what the input processing actually is and how it happens. We can argue about that, but everybody agrees that you have to process input data in some way so that it can be converted into something that's usable by that internal, whatever those devices are in your head that make language. And input can be defined in a very broad way, a narrow way, but I mean, I think for what we're talking, what Bill is talking about, 
it's probably a very broad definition of input. It's anything you hear, anything you read for sign language, anything that you see. Um, so it's very, any data from the second language that you're learning would be the input. But I, I would, the only, the only you, know, you all know me, the only thing I would add is that that, it, that appears in some kind of communicative context because it's not clear that if it doesn't, that you're paying attention for it meaning and then you lose that. Because one of the things we know you have to do during input processing, no matter the conditions, is link meaning and form. You have, because language, language is somehow tied, there's always a link between meaning form and, and meaning and function. And so that, that linking initially happens at the level of input processing. So that's why I always argue that input has to be couched in some kind of communicative context. Um, and so, there, I said that. I'm and, done. But it may be that the, it has to be couched in a meaningful context for sort of deeper acquisition, if you want to say, to take place. But it doesn't mean that it, you can't benefit from something that you read or even a word on a sign or something. Well, no, see, those are communicative contexts Well, I guess it's, then what would not be, a, what's not a communicative context? If, uh, I write, if, if I write a verb on the board and say, let's look at this ending, and I have no idea what the verb means, but I'm focused on the ending. And well, but the ending could tell you whether it's first person singular. Right, but I'm not processing any meaning up there that I can attach that to. Um, because, it, again, here's the, here's the problem with input processing, is we're not sure, for example, how morphology gets processed. I've been arguing for the last five years, based on the stuff that I've been looking at, that all morphology is pro processed as linked to something. You don't strip off endings off of words while you're processing. So you hear hablo in Spanish, you don't hear hablo and o. You process the whole thing as hablo, and that goes into your lexicon. And then you hear another word, como, which means I eat. That goes in your lexicon. And then over time, after you have a buildup of your lexicon, it gets robust enough, your system is able to make use of the connections between all those O's and all those different things to derive new usages for those things. Um, and so, it, which, is, which is why I think, I always make the argument that we're, we're not good, about, good enough in language acquisition and talking to teachers about making the links between lexicon and grammar, because they're there. So anyway, I'm going off track here because <laughs> Poor Serge has another question, don't you? Yes. Just a small question. The role of fun in L2 reading environment. The role of fun? Yes, in L2 reading environment. Reading? Reading, Oh. Yes. Well, if you're not having fun in reading, you're not going to do much reading, are you? <laughs> because uh, most of the time, they say we have to make uh, the input uh, interesting. And uh, the problem is that, OK, is fun uh, a way of making this input interesting? This is what and what, so I have to ask you to give me advice. I mean, it can be, right? Do you, do you make it fun? I have to look for material authentics which are interesting for students. You if you start reading a book, let's say in your first language, and it's not fun, you're not enjoying it, do you, you throw it, not throw it away, but you stop reading, right? So isn't it, yeah. is it the same thing for learning another language? If you can't, if their interest isn't there, they're not going to put much effort into it. Yeah. So fun, I, th I think. I think fun is great. Fun is, <laughs> I, I'm, you know me, I'm all about fun. <laughs> I put the un in fun. Let's all move to, let's all move to Colorado. That's how much fun I want to have. I'm shaking so my head over here, Angelica. How about oh, you? Oh, yeah, shaking over here, too. <laughs> Make Sarah, give, give Sarah a tote, will you? Who, who else asked a question that didn't get a tote? Everybody did get a tote, okay, I think. So Tim didn't get a tote. A tote. So we'll give Tim, we'll pass, oh, we'll pass yeah. Tim a tote. We'll pass Tim a tote. I have one tote Thank left you. only. I only have one tote left. Uh-oh. Where did it? all the other totes go? They've all been handed out to guests. Oh, my gosh. We're, we're going to be toteless. We're going to be a toteless society here. Hi, what's your name? I can leave you my tote. Shalom. Shalom. <laughs> my, name is my name is Orly. Orly. Um, and I have a question. Well, first tell us where you're from, Oli. I'm sorry? Tell us where you're from. I'm from Israel originally and from Boston now. You live in Boston here? Yes. So what did you do, just walk across the street yeah, to come here? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Speak louder, but hold it okay. down. Hold it down just a little bit. This way? Yeah. This way? Down. Oh, there. This way. This Sounds way. Good. Right here? <laughs> okay? I'm good? Good back there. Just go. So my question is how... Is it possible that a native speaker writes a text and it is not authentic? And this takes us back two questions ago, but maybe it's time to rethink 
about this whole concept. <laughs> Again, I think this is a question. I posed this to Charlene, my colleague, who's a good friend of mine. I said, okay, Charlene, so what if I take a first grade reader to my students? That is, see Dick run, run Dick run, see Dick chase Spot, run Spot run. Jill runs after, but this is what kids are, might be reading in kindergarten or first grade, right? That's native speakers writing for native speakers. So is that an authentic text? And by that definition, it would be. But is that a text I want to take to my students? And so, th th again, this whole definition about, we have to, I think, I, I think, I just prefer thinking about the context of the classroom as its own authentic context. And, and what can we put in hands that is interesting, worthwhile, that makes people motivated, makes them want to read, makes them want to do stuff uh, that's appropriate for level. Because we want, to, we want the equivalent of run, dick, run for 19-year-olds and 15-year-olds, right? Is, am I making sense? Absolutely. So, yeah, so, I mean, we don't want them to read Run, Dig, Run, but we want them to read something, or they want them to work with text and things. That, that doesn't mean, again, that you can't supplement with other things depending what your goals are, what you want to do. So it might be interesting to bring in someday a train schedule and say, let's do a comparison of this train schedule in Spain, this train schedule in New York. What are some differences we noticed right away? That's those authentic text, right? Look at the hours are different. So when you go to, when you go to Spain, or you go to Mexico to be the same, how do you read the hours? You know, those kinds of things might make sense depending on what your goals are. If you're doing a cultural unit, for example. Or, you know, anyway, so. Okay, so it's time to rethink it. Well, in the ESL world, we certainly use um, literature, young, young adult literature in, in the classroom. Yeah. Which the is, I mean, I guess it's, it's a different variety than the C, Dick, Run, or whatever right, right. that is. But it's still written for an, for an appropriate audience, uh, for a different audience, not but I would see, I see that as certainly authentic. I actually see, see Dick Run is, is authentic in a way because that is, it is written by native speakers for a particular audience. So I mean, to me, it has to do with more the audience that it's written for. The problem but, that I actually yeah. try to raise is that most of the time the authentic um, material that is out there is in a lower level than the intellectual of level the learner. Of, of the learner. Yeah. Yeah, that could be, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you. All right. Hey, we got another taker up here. Man, you people just find this is just like a line at Disneyland here. Hi, Hi, what's your name? I am Laura. Laura, can you hear Laura in the back there? Yes. Yes, you can hear Laura? Great. Okay, Laura, speak up and tell us what's on your mind. Where are you from? I will. I, Where are you I from? Was, we are toy nominees. That's right. Um, I have a question for you. SLA. No, you didn't, you didn't answer my question first. Oh, what was your question? <laughs> Where are you from? Where are you from? I'm from Kentucky. Kent, what part of Kentucky? Lexington. Oh, oh. I've been to Lexington, yeah. Have you? Yes. Wonderful state. Um, SLA is still a young field, and there's wonderful I research. don't know. Sue and I keep talking about this. We're going like <laughs> our Alice moment. Or we have our Alice. Old. And if you were at the research last night when Luke Plonsky said, this is things people known for decades, and we turn to each other, Charlene and I go, we've been around for these decades. So we feel, anyway, go ahead, I'm sorry. But it is a young field still yeah. with all the research, and there's so many holes still. What's an area of research you would love to see young researchers go into? What's a burning question that you'd love to see a kind of a branch start looking at? I don't know, because there's so many questions that still need to be figured out. Um, here's a question in my mind that, that, that needs to be figured out. Um, is it actually true that all second language acquisition results in non-nativeness? Or is it just because second language learners never have the same time on task over their years of the lifespan that a first language learner does? Because I always look at the example of Spanish, for example, when I, I talk about null subject development. A child in Spanish does not have an adult-like system for the use of null and overt subjects in Spanish until they're like 13. How many thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of contact hours has that child had by the age of 13? Now, spread that out, because we often look at calendar years when we look at second language learners, right? We all look at calendar years and we say, okay, so this person's been studying French for 15 years and they sound, they're so non-native like. But that's 15 years, but how many hours have they really been engaged with language the way that child has been, for example? 
So is it that? Um, but if it is, if it is the case that people always wind up non-native, why is that? We don't know why that is. I want to know why. And we because, don't know what it means because yeah. are you talking about pronunciation? Right. Which is sort of the face on everything. Is it the grammar, the morphology? Um, am I not close enough? Yeah. Am I close now? So there are many different ways that you can think about it. And I think we tend to think about people. I mean, the, the example I always like is Henry Kissinger, whose English is just absolutely stupendous, but there's with the accent. So is he native speaker-like? Well, yes. Well, no. So I think there are different parts right. of it that we can that we can think about. So, so in, in the term, and, and that's more the theoretical side, because we want to know that. And in the end, that can in, inform us about things, because that might tell us about the limits of our instructional abilities. That might tell us about what kind of input interaction people need if we want to keep pushing them along the path. We don't, and, and mm, there used to be research in the old days called, remember this, Sue, um, the good what the good language learner can tell us? And I think rather than Ruben, talking about... what was your name? Joan Rubin. Joan Rubin, right. And <laughs> Probably see, nobody here. Decades and decades, decades ago. ago. <laughs> um, so, and now I think the twist should be not what the good language learner can tell us, but what the near native can tell us, whatever we call that. Um, because I think that can inform us. What do those people do? They, they just have a talent, in which case there's other people. Or have they been doing things that we just don't, we haven't documented that then we could tell people, this is what you need to do and this is how we can help you. Um, so, so that's one area that, that interests me. Um, and then more on the applied side, I talked about this yesterday, um, that we still don't know, at least in the context, we know more about this in English, but hardly at all in languages like Spanish and French and Russian. We have no idea what happens in classrooms. We have no idea what the class, in terms of the amount of input learners are getting, what the interaction with that input looks like, what the task demands are, how teachers spend time using language. We just don't know. And because whenever we want to look at outcomes and measure outcomes of things, um, if we don't know what's happening in the classroom, we can't explain the results we're getting. So we need, we desperately need good qualitative and quantitative looks at classrooms, everything from how comprehensible was the input, how were the learners engaged. Um, I, I made a joke yesterday at the research SIG saying, wouldn't it be a cool experiment if, in terms of comprehensibility, because we never ask learners if the input is comprehensible, we just teach us, we assume we're being comprehensible, right? But wouldn't it be great if every learner had a little clicker thing that was hooked to a computer, or you had an app on your cell phone, and every time the teacher was incomprehensible to you, you tapped. And we attract that through the class with a video recording. And then go back and look at where were the spots were, and why was it incomprehensible? Uh, we don't know this basic kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that can help train teachers to be more comprehensible in the classroom. Um, so, so there's all this, this area of language use in the classroom that, at least in my world, is just non-existent. That'd be a really good thing to start looking at, particularly with some of the core practices and things going on in, that ACFO advocates and, and a lot of us advocate. So. And some of the work on, that people are doing now on proficiency assessment um, is starting to look at the classroom and, and the gains that are made and, and trying to uh, relate actual classroom behaviors to, out, to proficiency outcomes using standardized testing. So I think that's definitely an area that we don't know enough about. And um, I know a number of studies that are looking at that. Yeah. So there's just there's we could we could have a whole we could have three shows back to back on things that people need to be looking at everything from really theoretical stuff to very applied and nitty gritty kind of stuff too. So that was a great question. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Great. Look who we have. You have to stand up and take a bow. Francesca, give her, give an applause to Francesca. <laughs> Francesca was one of the winners of the Diva Lip Sync contest last month when we had our first anniversary celebration. So, um, can you give us a demonstration of what you did? Uh, can you tell us what oh. a Diva Lip Sync? I, I, just, I just did, Walter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't see it way. exactly. Oh. <laughs> okay, people at home have no idea what she's doing. She's lip syncing here to no music. Okay, there we go. All right, so Francesca, what's up? Hi, um, I had two quick questions. Okay. Um, I want to shout out to my students. Hopefully they're listening right now because it is a Saturday. Well, where are you from? California. I live in Big Bear Lake, but my I teach in Barstow High School, home well, of the Aztecs. Hey, Barstow, shout out to you. Woo-hoo. Um, I have two quick questions. The first one is, we talked. I'm getting away from the textbook, like I emailed a couple months ago. Right. How many tasks per semester or per year? How many tasks? 
like in my syllabus? It depends on you and how you set up your curriculum. You can have, you could have, for example, like three or four or five major tasks, and then you have little mini tasks along the way that help build up to those tasks. Right. You can have one big project-like task that's the end of the semester, and you're working toward that all along. Okay. It, 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 and then it depends on the no, level, right? Yeah. When you, when, you, when you talk about the use of tasks, they are malleable enough because you can construct big tasks, little tasks. Um, it's, it's what you want and how you, how you fashion your curriculum. Okay. And, and then for Spanish 1, 3, and AP, which I teach, that would vary accordingly, it, it based on how well my students are performing. No, I mean, no, not necessarily. I mean, you could still, again, your task, you might have more input-oriented tasks in the early phases, because they don't have, they're not very good with output yet, and then have more output-oriented tasks later on. You might, it just depends. And you might have more content-oriented tasks in the AP level than you would have and so like a, a, a task for me in the first year in my Spanish class would be something like the, the one I've, I've done in demos and, and about sleep, sleep habits. When you, you have to interview people and find out when they get up, when they go to bed, how many hours they sleep at night. And then we, average, we calculate an average mean for the class and find out where we fit on the national sleep scale. And we compare ages and stuff. I should be getting like 13 hours of sleep a night at my age, but it's not happening. So, but... Um, and that's, that's about us. Okay, but then maybe at the higher level, AP, your task might be more focused on content because of AP issues, right? Um, so you wouldn't be necessarily doing something like that. So. And my second question was, um, I do a multiple intelligence survey every year at the beginning of the school year, and I have so many musical learners, and I was wondering in the panel that you guys teach, how much do you sing in class? Oh. <laughs> you I, and I sing your every students moment together. of every day. Honestly, you do? <laughs> <laughs> have a demo. Well, huh? People no, hear something me. always comes out. Wouldn't it be great to have an operatic class? Just the teacher comes in and sings all the time. <laughs> Should try that. Yeah. yeah. We actually, no, people, Walter and I, we were known for, we take candy to the front office, chocolates to the front office all the time, and, and when, I, when I'm there in the afternoon. And Walter and I walk in, he'll go, let's go give candy to the front office, and we'll, be, we'll enter the office singing. Because we're always walking down the hallway singing. In fact, is Leanne here? Is Leanne Spino here? Is Leanne, uh, oh. remember Megan? Hi, Megan Leanne. said, remember what Megan said? Uh, Megan was a former student of our, uh, ours at MSU who just graduated. She's now at Mississippi, a uh, professor down at Mississippi State. And she said, I didn't believe in musicals that people just burst out singing during the middle of a conversation until I met you and Walter. <laughs> so all the time. Yeah. Okay, that's my mom was a drama teacher, so we grew up doing musicals. Oh, your all mom was a drama queen? Yes. <laughs> I'm the karaoke queen, and she's the drama queen. You're the karaoke queen. Okay. I am. Okay. I am. So we sing quite a I try. I want to bring more singing in, but um, and the kids get a kick out of it. Some are a little shy about it, and some are right. more outgoing, and then I hear. Like they take it outside of the classroom, right. so I just want to know you. Well, in ESL, there's the jazz chants. So you familiar oh, with the God, jazz chants? What's no. her name? book is mine. It's mine. It's mine. This book. I taught those. I can't those remember her name. Who when I taught those ESL chants. chants, oh my God. Um, there are whole books of jazz chants. But this really? goes back, to and they, they focus on yeah. different areas of language. Yeah. Oh. Um, oh take my. a look. Look up jazz chants. I can't. Anybody remember the name? Who was it? What's her name? Who did jazz chants? Somebody Googleize that. Jazz chants. But anyway, this goes back to what Serge was saying about having fun. Yes. Um, and so song, music can be a good... Music, believe it or not, it, it doesn't sound... When I talk about communication, people may think music is not part of communication, but it actually is. It's listening to songs, and we're, it's like reading. Because you, when you hear songs, you want to know what the person's saying. And you're paying attention to that language, and you want to learn those lyrics, and you want to sing that song. And you don't know how many people in Europe claim to have learned English because of the Beatles. Um, and I'm not saying that it's completely true, they might be exaggerating, but I know that they got a lot out of, of, of listening to those songs and then learning those songs and wanting to sing like the Beatles. And because the thing, you actually have to know what you're saying. Um, and um, I mean, you, you can always fake sing, like some actors and actresses fake sing, um, you know, foreign songs or non-English non songs or whatever, non-Spanish, whatever. I hate the word foreign, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said foreign, but. Um, but 
kids and people who actually listen to music for entertainment actually are trying to learn the lyrics, what they mean. So music can be a good source of input. Do it you can want be my fun. true confession? Uh-oh, Sue Gass is going to give us a true wow. confession. Well, it's not that, it's not that racy. But I did, <laughs> you, when I was living in Italy and I was learning Italian, oh my God, did I use songs. I mean, I would sit in my room and I knew every word to every single song. And I would listen to it and listen to it. And I use that to, you, to sort of analyze the grammar. Um, so I, I, I totally understood the grammar of every single song that I listened to, and I did that for hours and hours a day. I so remember that's my confession. singing a lot in elementary school, like third grade was O Tannenbaum. I mean, I sang that for 30 years after that, but um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I, um, I don't teach elementary, but um, I don't see a lot of songs going on much. Well, there's there's actual stuff about songs. And there's here. authentic there's text stuff and about songs. Authentic there. materials if you want it. Right. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you. See you later. Thank you. Thank you. Who's next? Yay! Look at that smile. I like that. <laughs> Grab the mic so I can ask you what your name is. What's your name? Uh, my name's Erica Sponberg. Eric, I, I, Eric, I can't hear you in the earphones. So I might have to hold a little closer. Erica Sponberg. Erica Sponberg. That's a neat name. Well, Thank where's you. Sponberg come from? Uh, your... Spawn is an area in. Sweden, a region, and then Berg is mountain. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. But you're not from Sweden. You're from? Valparaiso, Indiana, but I'm a PhD candidate in, at Kansas State University. Okay, great. PhD candidate. Good. Yeah. Round of applause for our grad students. Good yeah. for you. Okay, Erica, so what's your question? What's your um, topic? I just wanted to get your perspective on interdisciplinary, de department interdisciplinary work between either the modern language programs and the colleges of education. Um, either how you guys have gone about collaborating, um, how often you collaborate, what's your perspective on collaborating, and um, maybe what are some of the successes and challenges you've faced while collaborating with colleges of education? That's, did everybody hear that question about collaboration between like language departments and schools of education? So Erica wants to know what experience we've had with collaborating between language departments and schools of education, what have been the results of that, and so on. Um, Sue, you want? <laughs> Sue's Thanks. been I knew, I knew Sue's been at MSU me. longer than I have, and so um, <laughs> I. I, I can A lot of it is dependent dependent on the person. So in our particular case, there are a number of us who will sit on graduate committees in the College of Education, and vice versa. So it depends on the area of SLA that people are dealing with. I think um, people who are dealing with formal um, linguistics and SLA, maybe not so much because their interests just don't um, um, converge, but others who are dealing with um, language learning and language teaching in those areas, it will. So in my own experience, I found that it's more, it depends on the individuals um, from bo on both sides. Um, and also physically at MSU, we're, we're quite close. And I think the physical dis um, distance also makes a difference. Um, we're not that, I mean, we're about 100 yards maybe from one another. And something else that we've done at MSU is work closely um, in the area of, of teacher education. I mean, we, we collaborate with the faculty members to make sure that our students reach the proficiency levels that they need to. So we're looking at you know, ways to, to ensure that our students can be proficient future language educators. So get their certification, right? Yeah, I think that, but my guess is, I'm gonna venture a guess, I could be wrong, but I'm gonna venture a guess, based on, because I travel a lot, as you know, all around the country. I'm gonna guess that there's more collaboration at the graduate level than there is at the undergraduate level. I have a feeling, I just have the suspicion, that even though, yes, that's true, we do that at Michigan State, the actual interaction of faculty with faculty about undergraduate teacher education is pretty minimal, and I think the reason, there's a historic reason for that. Um, because the reason, correct, I don't know if we have an ACTFL person here, but my understanding about the birth of ACTFL 50 years ago was it was a separation from the MLA. Is that correct? Is that something right like that? And so the MLA basically absolved itself from doing any kind of teacher education work. And so ACTFL formed and said, well, we, we want to help language teachers. And so at MLA are largely housed in schools of humanities and, and College of Arts and Letters like ours and so on. And so I think there was, at that level, there was literally a separation uh, a, a between that. And I think that is firmly, I think that's probably entrenched at the undergraduate level. At the graduate level, not so much. I think Sue is right because there's a lot more 
when we start to talk about research on second languages, whether it's applied research or theoretical research or however we want to view it, you start to get people trying to talk to each other because acquisition is so big and so complex that we need multiple voices to do that. And I'm wondering, sitting here, I hadn't really thought about this, but certainly, yeah. oh, oh, sorry, in the ESL world, um, there may be more collaboration at the undergraduate level because we certainly, um, I'm in a college of arts and letters, as is Bill, and we have a number of courses for um, college of ed undergraduates as they're going, because there's ESL endorsement in our state. So we have designed courses that fit the needs of the college of ed. We have the faculty who can do it, and they have the need. So it may be maybe less so in the foreign languages. Yeah, RCS has, no, my department, RCS, Romance and Classical Studies, as far as I know, has none of those those kinds of courses you're talking about. Right, but about. you worked for the, um, don't you work with the College of Ed for teacher education? Um, Talk more in the mic. Oh, sorry. Talking to Bill. <laughs> you, you think we were just in our offices talking to one another, sorry. <laughs> but it may if be, we it were, may be it wouldn't sound like this. Yeah, Sue right. I, we have, uh, well, never mind. Sue and I can like, <laughs> we, we. We're being good. <laughs> we're, we're, we, we are watching our language Very since nice. we're here in public, so. So it may be a difference between the ESL world and the foreign language world. Yeah. It may be another area yeah. difference. Yeah. So, but good question. Thank you, Erica. Good luck on Thanks. your studies. Thanks, Erica. Right. Thanks, Erica. Let me remind everybody why we bring our next person up to the microphone, that there's, when we end the show at 4 o'clock, if you want to come up, we've got some more buttons and notepads and stuff here. If you're, they're yours to take. If you want some selfies, we have time. We're going to hang around. The four of us are going to hang around for a little while. We love to chit-chat and get pictures with you. I do have to buzz out around 4.30 or so, uh, but, but we would love to do that with you, so feel free to come up. Don't mob us. Don't trample us. Walter has a wife to get home to. <laughs> I have a dog to get home to. Well, look who it is. Say your name, young man. I am Ruben. Hi, Ruben. How's it going? It's going well. You look Thanks. like you have a very thought, well thought out question here. Well, I'm an aspiring academic, and yes, I'm verbose, and so I try to keep it a little bit concise. I wrote it down so I wouldn't be, you know, too. Ruben, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you for just one minute because Sue has a four o'clock meeting, so she has to leave to get there in time. So we are going to excuse Sue from the table and thank her with a big round of applause for being here. Thank you, Sue. Thanks, Sue. Have a good meeting. Yeah, she has to, has to go to another building and do different things, and so thank you, Sue. All right, Ruben, so what's up, young man? How are you? Tell us where you're from. Uh, I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Iowa. Yay, another PhD student. There awesome. we go. Uh, so my question for you is... And my, my fellow paleo traveler. Yes. Oh, the last night we kind of went off a little bit. Yeah, off the wagon. <laughs> Uh, so my question for you starts out with a statement. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion at sessions here at ACTFL, and I think throughout the field as well, about what communicative language teaching really is. Um, how can we as language teachers or researchers set the record straight, or how can you, perhaps? And on a related note, should we, should we be using a different term, such as proficiency-based teaching, to distinguish what it is that we do and how it's different from the common misconception of what CLT is? Or are names and titles of teaching approaches completely irrelevant? Okay. Did everybody hear that back there, what the question's about? Okay. So the first part is what is, there seems to be some confusion about what CLT is, communicative language teaching. And Ruben's absolutely right. This, I don't know how this has happened. Actually, I do. I wrote an article about this in 1998 in Hispania called Perceptions of and Perspectives on the Term Communicative. And what I talked about in that article, because I had just done a textbook that people were going, that's not communicative. And I went, what is the most communicative book I know? It had no paradigms, no, no grammar list in it, it had no vocabulary list, it was textual, it was all kinds of stuff. And people said, because what happened in the communicative revolution in the 70s is um, people begin to market materials with labels. <laughs> And so what happens Walter. is a book that was published in 1966 prior to the communicative revolution that went into a third edition in 1976, all of a sudden got a, this is a communicative approach label slapped on it. And the same thing happened with proficiency-based instruction in the 80s and 90s. You got old wine and new bottles is what was happening. And so, um, so I have been trying, as some of you know, I've been trying to clarify and de- 
debug, as it were, what communicative language teaching really is. And I would argue that proficiency-based language teaching ought to be and should be communicative language teaching. They should be one and the same thing. Because when you are doing communicative language teaching, you are teaching toward proficiency. Proficiency is an outcome, it's not a method, right? So proficiency is about, are you able to communicate? That's what it is. And so that means then that you are teaching somehow to help develop communicability. Um, and so, so that answers part of your question, Ruben. And, and the other part of your question, I think, was what can we do about that? Um, I don't, well, I'm going to keep talking about this. I, I, I talk about this at almost everywhere I go now um, to, to try to tell people that we're not in a post-communicative era. We are, we've been in it. We're in the thick of it. It's not going away. Proficiency is just another way of talking about that. Um, uh, Input-based approaches are communicative approaches. Because people think communicative... Uh, here's something I hear, I correct all the time. This. You've probably heard this, Ruben, right? Oh, I teach with the communicative method. And I go, the? Like there's one? No. Communicative is not a method. It's an umbrella term for a bunch of different things, right? And so as I said yesterday in the plenary with Steve, I listed just off the top of my head, I listed six different ways to approach the classroom that all fall under the umbrella of communicative. So I think we just need to talk about these things. In fact, my book coming out with Actful Yay this year, is 2017, is um, addressing that issue. And it's a very short, readable book. It's, I, you know me, I like writing for teachers. I like writing for... Uh, people who don't have time to read big, ponderous, scholarly articles. I do that for other people as well. Um, and so um, when that book comes out, I'm hoping that will help people see that all these things, what communication really is, what all these things fit together. Um, and I don't, I, I'm not going to change the term communicative language. I think it's a great term. So, all right. Thank you, Ruben. Thanks, Ruben. That was a good question. These graduate students, you guys are on top of things. You're making me I feel... I like it. Hey, look at this. We have a new special guest here, ladies and gentlemen. Yay! <laughs> are you going to put the headphones on, Grant? There was... My mic is off. Is my mic off? No, no you're, you're on. on. No, it's on. You there was a seat at the table. I thought, well, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh. Look Do you have something this. to say? Right, yeah. Yeah, I got a question for you. <laughs> and you couldn't do that over there? I could, but I like to be closer to you than that. Okay. <laughs> He's watch just out, like, watch just out like Karen Carpenter. He longs to be close to me. Who doesn't, <laughs> Bill? Who doesn't? Okay, everybody, this is Grant. Say hi, Grant. Hi, Grant. Hey, Grant, tell us where you're oh, from. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. Yay, St. Paul. Originally from corn stalks and soybean in southern Illinois. Anybody else from Illinois? There we go. All right. <laughs> Okay, Not sir. Not too many out What's there. Up? What's on your mind? So Shoot. here's here's my question for you, Bill. I heard with a very um, I heard with a very distinguished um, uh, how do I want to say this? Very definitive statement that if a teacher te if a teacher speaks for more than two minutes, that that automatically defines the class as a teacher centered class. And I wonder what you think about that. Um, no. I tried to talk about this yesterday at the plenary, so I will, I will say this again. How much time do we have? Yeah, I got about two minutes here. Um, I make the distinction between a teacher-centered class and a teacher-led class. And there can be a teacher-centered class where the students aren't the center, and there can be a teacher-led class where the students are the center. And so I like to say that, that if a teacher is engaged in providing input in the classroom and appropriate tasks and leading the students through something, and the teacher is talking, if the students are engaged with the teacher, um, that is a teacher-led, student-centered class. Why? Because what the teacher understands from the get-go is how acquisition works and how language learning works and how things happen in people's heads and what students need. Rather than putting the curriculum first, the student's acquisition is put first. That's a student-centered class, right? Now, yeah. And then teachers get to lead that class. They, they're the ones that have to, okay, so here's my analogy, not an analogy, but how many of you, raise your hands if you have children. Now, raise your hand if you have a two-year-old. When you are interacting with your two-year-old, 
Do we call that a parent-centered conversation? You're laughing because it's not. It's not. The parents may carry a, a, a large part of the conversation because the kid might only be at the two-word stage. You see this all the time. Where are you going, honey? Da. No. Oh, no. Where are you going? Da. You're going where? I don't understand it. Da. Oh, you're going there. Yeah, da. The parents doing most of the talking, but that's a, that's a child-centered conversation, but the parent is leading it, right? And so that's what we're talking about in the classrooms, teacher-led classrooms um, that are student-centered because the teacher understands what acquisition is and, and how it's going to happen. So I, I just want to get away from that. I think teacher-centeredness is, if I can, I think it's borrowed from schools of education, and rightly so, to talk about the, because it's one again one of these ideas that there's nothing special about language. I firmly believe in my heart that language is special. This is why only humans have language and not other species. Um, and learning language is different from learning subject matter. Or acquiring language is different from learning subject matter. So if that's the case, then all the concepts and all the constructs we use from education to talk about subject matter may not, I'm not saying they don't, may not apply to second language acquisition. So we have to be careful about how we import those things. And so those ideas we have about over here in the domains of science and math, this is how learning should happen, may not translate to a language acquisition class. Um, and we just have to stand up and challenge those things, not in a mean way, but just question them and, and assert ourselves that, no, we think there's something actually different and special about languages. Here's where we overlap with you, but here's where we're different. Um, and that's one of the areas. Difference between teacher-centered and teacher-led. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Did I talk too much? Sorry. Did I, was, I, was, that, was that Bill you centered? You were more than two minutes. Was that Bill centered there? <laughs> All right. We have, a, we have like, uh, we have maybe one or two minutes left for a fast question. There we go, young man. This is Jeremy. Welcome, Jeremy. Jeremy. Hello. Hello. Whoa. Oh. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right, Jeremy. Hey, what's up, Jeremy? Where are you from? I am uh, teaching Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. All right. And uh, my question was, well, I'm, I'm a recovering grammarian, and so <laughs> I wanted to know what you thought about when teachers are thinking in textbook terms, we're thinking a lot of times of present and past and, you know, even moods, et cetera, especially for Spanish. So... Is, do you know of anything that actually talks about an optimal time for learning one or another, or should we just mix them all together in some way in a comprehensible way? Um, I, I, this, is, well, this is one of the things I talk about in my book, and I talk about it in presentations. Can, this, I, can I take this one, Bill? <laughs> yeah, go, go Grant. Go Grant. I like it. No, I'm just kidding. I just tea wanted to say that. Go ahead. No, go ahead. with no, Grant. I'm, I'm just, I'm I like done. it. No, tea with Grant Boulanger. I just wanted Has to say that. Has a nice ring to yeah. it. What's your middle initial, Grant? Yeah. J. T G J B. That's that doesn't roll quite nicely. Okay, you guys just took you just took a minute of Jeremy's question, and we're running out of time. How about gin with G J B? Okay. I love it. Let's do that. Jeremy, acquisition <laughs> is slow, piecemeal, and stage life. And the reason we say it's piecemeal, because even getting the present tense, you don't get it all at once. You get this little bit, and then you get this little bit, and you get this little bit, and you get this little bit down the road. And in the meantime, while you're learning all those little pieces of the present tense, you're starting to map on, in Spanish, for example, that there's a stress shift from present to other tenses. And the first thing you notice is that something in the past tense has a stress shift to the end. So you don't know how to say, you know, you don't know if it's to be, you don't know, but you know there's a stress shift. Because you're already starting to process that from the, da process that from the data you're here. And this is all happening once. So there's no way to talk about one before the other, and it just doesn't happen. Acquisition doesn't happen that way. And the, and the data, we've got lots of data. Not lots, but we have significant data on that, that that let us know that. So just use language naturally, and things will happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Good question. Thanks, Jeremy. All right. Do I, we need to start wrapping up, Daniel? How are we doing? Mm -hmm. Yep. Right now. Right now. Okay, so we are going to do our acknowledgments. Uh, we want to thank over here on my far left is Daniel Trago, our technical producer. Thank you, Daniel. Yay! Where's Luca? Luca, raise your hand. Luca, our media producer, the talented audience rustler and muscle man, Dustin. Raise your hand over there, Dustin DeFelice. Hello, Dustin. 
Jeff Maloney is not with us today. We want to thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our dean. We love our dean, Christopher Long. Remember to go to our college's website and check out our podcast section because the dean has created a new one. That's awesome. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this show here on the floor of the Active Exhibit Hall do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And they also don't affect or don't reflect ACTFL itself. We want to thank everybody at ACTFL who made this happen for having us here this year. We want to thank our special guest, Sue Gass. And of course, we want to thank all of our listeners and the wonderful audience here at ACTFL. Next week, we're on break because it's Thanksgiving, so take the time to catch up on past episodes of the show. We'll be back the week after that. Until then, enjoy the rest of the conference. Have a great weekend. Happy acquisition, everybody. Bye, Bye everyone. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Bill.